have a 12-month head start. 18. How could you possibly know that? We've got one hope. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. Secret laboratory. Keep everyone there until it's done. Hello and welcome to the Dead Letter Movie Podcast. This is episode 86, recorded July 30th, 2023. I'm Tim. I'm Andrew. And we are talking about one of the two biggest movies of the year, likely. Uh, This is Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, continuing our ongoing series, The Atomic Summer, uh, starring Killian Murphy as Oppenheimer. It's a hard C, folks. (laughs) And... uh, too many others to name. Yeah, I don't know if this is a fair comp because I've never seen all of this movie, but I couldn't help but think of Judgment at Nuremberg. So it's about the trials at Nuremberg that had like a really star-studded cast back in the day with um, Stanley Kramer, I think, was who directed that. And that I couldn't help but think of that concept while watching this. It's like every time a big famous person from history would show up, a big famous actor would be playing them. Mm-hmm. So that was... You know, that that's sort of what I kept thinking of throughout this, but I'm not 100% sure if that's a worthy comp, but I'll admit it popped in my head. Um, but yeah. yeah, this movie is a star-studded ensemble of uh, a lot of people. Uh, this is prob- this I, I looked it up. This is the first, or yeah, this is the, yeah, okay, here it is. So the last Josh Hartnett movie I saw in the theater was 30 Days of Night. Oh, wow. <laughs> in 2007. Yeah, so. yeah, it's been a little while. Been a while, so uh, I yeah. forgot he was going to be in this, and was a little, oh, that's that that is Josh Hartnett. Yeah, all right, it is, it yeah. is. How about that? He's still yeah. at it. He's still at um, it. Um, yeah, we got Florence Pugh, we got Emily Blunt, we have mm-hmm. um, uh, Olivia Thirlby. Um, like, is a little bit underused. Well, well, a lot of the women are underused, but we'll get to that when we get to that. Um, but yeah, we got Benny Softy. We got. Uh, Matt Damon, of course, mm-hmm. and yeah, so this is, oh, and of course, and you know, most importantly, probably in the case of this story, that would be Robert Downey Jr., mm-hmm. so yeah, this mm-hmm. is this is the big movie of the summer, along with another one, but I'll talk about that when we get, yeah, when we get yeah. to context. We'll, we'll get into that later. Um, yeah. Quick shout to Jack Quaid, who fell oh, below yeah. the fold in the credits, uh, here portraying Richard Feynman. Yeah. And yeah, there was in in that oh man, let's see, seriously, I could just like look look like look down the list and just be like, oh that guy, that guy, that guy. Oh yeah, Kenneth mm-hmm. Branagh is in this movie. Dane yes, DeHaan is. is in this movie. Jason Clark is in this movie. Yeah. Um, a detriment to the movie is Casey Affleck is in this movie. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, tick, uh, get what you get. Yeah. Oh, Matthew Modine again. The yeah. uh, a curious lack of Michael Caine, but you know, so, can't be in all the movies. I said too many to name, but we just named a whole bunch. Yeah, no, that just tells you. The list goes on. It just goes on and on. Well, that's all right. Anyway, so this is the story of J-Bob, or J. Robert Oppenheimer, who ran the Manhattan Project after being convinced by Leslie Groves. And this has been made into, this story has been made into movies before. Just this summer, I sat down and watched Fat Man and Little Boy, Mm -hmm. which is basically the same story from Groves' perspective, where, you know, we have Paul Newman in the Matt Damon role in this case. And that movie is not bad. It's, um, if you're really into this, I could, you know, recommend checking it out. It's, I don't know, it's kind of like a three-star movie. Like, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't awful, but it was it was kind of like missing that spark. And if there's one thing I could say about this movie, it's got a lot of spark. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I, you know, from, from pretty early on in its very, very long runtime, this is a three-hour movie. Mm-hmm. No, it was, was very engaged and... 
wrapped up in what was going on on screen. This in spite of constant shifting of perspectives and in the case of the presentation I saw, aspect ratios as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I couldn't help but wonder if, you know, when Christopher Nolan's not making his own movies, what's he watching? Is he watching mm-hmm. Wes Anderson? Mm-hmm. <laughs> me, me thinks more Stanley Kubrick, but <laughs> we... Yeah. So, yeah, a little bit of context before we get into the meat of it. This is, after all, our first hybrid slash series, like, episode, so I gotta put some yeah, context in yeah. this. Um, so this is Nolan's 12th feature. Um, I have seen all of them. Um, this goes all the way back to Following, and then, like, Memento, Insomnia, etc. So this is his first movie, not with Warner Brothers, since Insomnia. And a lot of that has, there's a lot of drama about that. Mostly seems to be about how they handle Tenet, which... I hate to be on the side of a big studio, especially in the middle of all this strike going on. But, dude, there was, like, a pandemic going on. Yeah. So, like, I mean, I from an artist standpoint, I get why he was annoyed. But as a human standpoint, I was like, chill, bro. Chill. Yeah. But, yeah. I, 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 I'm completely with you there. I, I get why he would be upset by this. But, no, I, I think the studio made the right decision in that case. I agree. And, yeah. So, anyway, yep, 12th feature, this feels and kind of i guess a second world war ii movie not a war movie but you know a world war ii movie Mm -hmm. um in that you know along with dunkirk and to me like um so this was this unlike fat man and little boy which was filmed in durango mexico this actually was filmed in los alamos santa fe and the surrounding areas as well as other important areas to the story which was you know kind of neat a lot of those buildings are still in los alamos if you want to go check them out (laughs) you can like be like oh there's this is where that happened. So that's kind of fun. And in something that sort of reminded people of the Dark Knight versus Mamma Mia some 11 years ago, we had what everyone, <laughs> I'm going to say the thing that everyone knew I was going to talk about, and that is because we have to talk about the given we context do. of we this, do. and that is Barbenheimer. And that is that this has its own Wikipedia page, I found out. Um, <laughs> so that's fun. But yeah, so Barbenheimer, which is the pitting of Greta Gerwig's Barbie with this movie, Oppenheimer. And we all knew Barbie was going to win out. <laughs> like there is, because a, a, it's going to be a lot more pleasant situation. Also, it's a two-hour movie as opposed to a three-hour movie. So mm-hmm. that's that many more screen, yep. uh, that many more showtimes you can have. And so the math was always going to be on Barbie's side. But the fun thing about it was is that this brought out so many different kinds of audiences and more different kind of people into the theater. And we discovered the kind of people that are into both. I mean, I'm going to be going seeing Barbie after Tim and I are done recording this today. So I'm looking forward to that. And so this, it's what I said in the last episode, like, this is a good thing. Anything that gets people in the theater and excited about it is a good thing. These movies are not against each other. They are not, I mean, they are fiscally and who wants to win the box office, I guess. But they're not against each other in a which in, in in other ways and so that said dollars to donuts though it looks like the the two movies last week um, on its opening weekend were 79 percent of the box office with barbie <laughs> being 52 and oppenheimer being 27 percent so in a ish it's uh barbie is outselling oppenheimer two to one ish and, uh, and that seems to be pretty steadily going along the way because uh, there's a lot of yeah. rewatchability to Barbie, from what I understand. I've seen, I've already talked to people who've seen the movie three times. Uh, Oppenheimer is a hard movie to watch more than once, uh-huh. <laughs> I will say. Uh-huh. And not just, and the three-hour runtime is not the only part of that. <laughs> I will. I that's will, that's a big yeah. part of it, but not. Yeah, there there are other factors. 
Yes, indeed. Um, and there's a lot of other stuff going on behind this. Um, we also have um, this whole other thing to it called Kroppenheimer. So, as it's been called, which is the, <laughs> depending on which format of the movie you see, it will have a slightly different aspect ratio. So, the the be-all, end-all, Christopher Nolan says, go see this version of the movie if you can, is the, the 70 millimeter IMAX presentation, which... Not every IMAX projector could handle because the reels weighed way more than normal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So some places had to get um, retrofitted, I don't think is the correct term. But... Uh, no, that, 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 that is correct. Oh, that is correct. Um, okay. they, are, they are at the physical limits. They, yeah. they cannot make these larger to accommodate larger film reels because of the weight. Yep. It's too heavy. Yep. Yes. And uh, this is uh, this would be specifically the horizontal moving uh, version of the of the film reel. Uh, when you you well, for the most part, if you're seeing a film on 35 or you know even 70 millimeter, it's usually being fed in vertically. Specifically, like and that has a much and and that horizontal running version of it has a wider, mm -hmm. very open aspect ratio, very similar to Academy ratio, and the whereas the 35 millimeter and the digital projection version and other 70 millimeter versions, non-IMAX versions of it, are mostly at a like 220 aspect ratio, which is a much more rectangular um, version of it. Something kind of akin to like a CinemaScope sort of thing. I saw it in a format called XD, which is Cinemark's thing, and I th think I saw it at a 1.9 aspect ratio. This is the nerdiest stuff I could be talking to you about. <laughs> I realize this. Um, but that's another layer to all of this. My only hope is that when this comes out on 4K, that it is the the wide, um, or not yeah. wide, but the the uh, open um, IMAX format because it does look like you're seeing a lot. You can perhaps when I'm when I do the show notes for this, I'll try to put up the the image that you can find pretty easily, yeah. just so you have a better idea of what what on earth I'm talking about. So yeah, so yeah, I saw yeah. this in a digital IMAX presentation. And the aspect ratio shifted uh, with with some frequency. Yeah, some it was it was the the big you know fill the the whole IMAX screen. Others it was a more typical widescreen presentation, and it moved throughout, kind of in conjunction, in combination with uh, the the shifts between scenes being in color versus black and white. Mm -hmm. So it was it was all interesting, and I I felt like there was a an intentional artistic touch to that. Mm -hmm. I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about what exactly was being said by any of those given shifts mm -hmm. in in aspect ratio, mostly because I was just watching the movie. But yeah, yeah I, I I agree. It's like if if there is a definitive aspect ratio for this film, let's let's have that when it's you know home video and and digital releases. Right. I saw this with a bunch of students on a field trip for summer school, which was. A fascinating thing to do and I don't think the aspect ratio changed I was closer to the screen than I usually am for these sort of things but I don't think it did but I don't know one the fancy thing with the XD thing is that every so often stuff vibrated which I will admit made the Trinity scene a little bit something extra <laughs> but yeah uh, but yeah, so yeah, that's, uh, I mean there's a lot more that'll probably you know show up as time goes by because the making of things is a big it's a thing that comes out as movies get older and older, but yeah, so yeah, let's get into uh, the film specific. Um, the movie's been out for a little bit while, so Tim and I might get a little bit more spoilier than we usually do here. A little bit. This is atomic test. 
The Russians have a bomb. We're supposed to be years ahead of them, but what were you guys doing in Los Alamos? All right, Tim. So what works for you here? Similar to uh, the previously discussed Asteroid City, there's very little in this movie that doesn't work for me. I mean, I, I feel like the actors are all on top of their game. Everybody's turning in a fantastic performance. You know, even those folks who it's like, oh, this this is this was a big important figure in in physics and and science at the time, like Jack Quaid playing Richard Feynman, mm -hmm. uh, who has maybe a half dozen lines over the three hour runtime, maybe. Mm -hmm. But I feel like everybody is invested in it and and sells the part, and it's entirely credible. Who I think actually does one of the best jobs with his little bit amount is uh, Rami Malek, who oh yeah. Who is we see him most of the movie like he's just he just pops up here but he doesn't say anything until like i don't know probably like the last 30 or 40 minutes of the movie right yeah yeah, yeah toward toward the end there um had yeah. had very little in the way of of dialogue mm -hmm. uh so another thing of note nolan has has said there's no cg in this movie yeah but such effects as there were were entirely practical mm -hmm. the and i looked up how that was done so this is this is something I could have covered in context, I guess. But um, so this so what they did was they made basically a miniature explosion and mm -hmm. did really big close-ups. And when you watch the Trinity scene, you can totally see that that's kind of what they did. This is very different from what David Lynch did in the Return episode that we watched yeah. during our double feature. Yeah, yeah. Um, so notably, there the the way that fits in is is uh, it ties into sort of visions that that uh, the character of Oppenheimer has that that mm -hmm. we are shown prior to that you know leading up to that moment but we never get a big wide shot with the distinctive mushroom cloud it's it's all kind of close-ups and, and various angles on it but you never get a, a big pullback where you see the entire thing in full frame and i think that that was that was a smart move yeah yeah i i thought it was very very effective without having you know that that particular bit of iconography that's it's 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 fraught. It would not have been out of place here, but I thought it was an interesting choice to not have it. Agreed. And so when it comes to the no CG thing, it's kind of interesting to like that they're really putting that out there because I feel like a lot of CG in the situation, like, like if David Fincher made this movie, it would be him hiding things that the CG would be used to make it look more like the period, mm -hmm. which which is something we saw a lot in the Indiana Jones movie. We saw that rooftop yeah, scene. Yeah. Like, oh, there's a lot of CG in that scene just to make it look like <laughs> the 40s again. And it sounds like he didn't have to do that for this because, well, he went to New Mexico, and when you're just using big, big open desert-esque um, spaces, it's pretty easy to hide modern things. So, yeah. But yeah, um, the the film is given, we're given two frame narratives for the most part. This is, uh, the main thrust is it is a biopic about Oppenheimer, focusing mostly on the Manhattan Project. But we also get Senator Strauss's con confirmation hearing happening. So this is Robert Downey Jr.'s character. And so we see these two men kind of juxtaposed against each other in their various frame narratives and the few times that they meet in person from different perspectives. And this is all edited in a very interesting way where things are kind of going... I would like, for the most part, it's linear. It is more or less going from point A to point B. It's going from early days of Oppenheimer to the end of life for the most part. 
and it more or less keeps that, but it kind of does a sort of cyclical return back through time, yeah. going onward and onward. Yeah, and those those two narratives are sort of interleaved over the, the course yes. of the film's runtime. Yes, and I think that's a neat way to tell this story. Um, I have not read the modern Prometheus. I'm uh, sorry, the uh, modern Prometheus. American that's, Prometheus. That's very, yes, modern Prometheus is straight up Frankenstein. Um, but uh, yeah, I have not read the American uh, the American Prometheus, so I don't know if that's how the book is structured. Sometimes history books will be structured with something like that, comparing two people um, to move along uh, to move along like a you know to make the book more interesting than just a history textbook. Um, I don't know uh, from the people I have known that have read the book, they really like the book, but I don't know how that book is structured. So it could be this way. It could be something else, but yeah, which yeah. which brings us to one of the the things that is it's going to happen with any movie like this, any sort of biopic, mm. artistic license. Obviously, there you can only course, do so much in well, three hours. Yeah, right, you you can only do so much in three hours, and sometimes you just feel like you got to add that little bit of extra drama. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of that here. So there are two moments which are visited and occasionally revisited in which Oppenheimer and Einstein meet and have brief conversations yes. uh, from what's what's out there. These two particular moments never actually happened. These two men did know each other and were friends. They, they did have some differences and discussions. Neither of these two moments probably ever happened or anything like them. And there's a, there's another where I've I've read recently that um, J. Robert Einberheimer's grandson, yeah, has said, uh, yeah, has, has said yes. There's there's some apocrypha, but there's no real historical evidence to suggest the uh, the bit with the apple mm -hmm. toward the beginning of the film ever yeah. happened either. Yeah, yeah. There's actually yeah. So there's been some. And the funny thing is, like, there's some people that are backing up that that did happen. Maybe not like that, but something like that had happened. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So it's... that's, that's eh, okay. Maybe yeah. something kind of like and, this, but. And sometimes when you don't, like, when you don't have, like, I don't, like, it's not like you wrote about that in a diary for us to, like, pick up on or anything like that. Yeah, not, not exactly, anyway. Yeah. So, like, it, you sometimes have to take a guess at what happened. So. Yeah. So, and yeah. that's, that's kind of what happens here. Mm -hmm. um, and. As as mentioned, the the two bits with with Einstein's okay, there's there's some creative liberty taken here, but it doesn't feel out of character, right? And it also adds to the whole trial aspect that's happening in both of these. So we have a confirmation mm -hmm. hearing that's going on with 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 Senator Strauss, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, and we have a Q clearance hearing of sorts. I yeah, guess. yeah, yeah. Um, um, it's not yeah. it's not it's not a hundred percent a hearing hearing. It's more like a board meeting that's a little bit more official and for lack of better terminology and the having having those two juxtaposed means we have to also kind of heighten the drama in certain senses because we have we have moments presented as evidence and those moments have to be something that means something in either respective hearing so that's part of the other reason why you got to have artistic license because if you're going to follow this kind of courtroom procedure i'm not this isn't a procedural movie but i mean like if you're going to use that as your frame you also have to stick with that because you know if you ever actually go to a trial trials are actually kind of boring 
<laughs> and so you have, I think it's just a lot of people talking, saying a thing, and both sides know what the other sides are more or less going to say at a given time, which is a thing that's you know kind of played up in movies. And so yep. that kind of tells you what kind of artistic license we're going to have to do here in order to keep this movie interesting and moving along. Yeah. So and another thing, and and this this really is the the heart of of this movie is that Oppenheimer himself is not painted as just a hero. He's he's mm-hmm. He's a complicated figure. He has some definite faults, some of which contributed to his somewhat downfall. Um, and and he had reservations about it and had his own internal conflict with all of that. That's all presented here. He was a complicated individual, and that is very much on display in this film. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that that's there. Yeah. And, yeah. And I'll and I have something about that to ask later um, when we when we get to like themes and message and stuff. So. Don't let me forget. Um, yeah. So, yeah. The, the yeah, I, A lot of stuff works for me in this movie. I think it is, you know, very well made. Um, this could be... Now, all right. So, I have seen all of Christopher Nolan's movies, all 12 of them. And if you were to ask me what I think is his best movie... Um, so, his most rewatchable movie is, you know, probably The Dark Knight or Batman Begins. You can watch those movies yeah. at any time. And, like, those are entertaining to watch um his best movie like when it comes to craft and all just sheer goodness is probably dunkirk for me and i say this is a guy who is extremely burnt down on world war ii movies and i feel <laughs> that way and and like when i think about how he makes movies and like um whereas like if i was going to say his most representative movie i'd probably say like inception where it has that like yeah that like mind stuff the like having to figure it out puzzle box certain thing to it and but it still has a lot of good craft and everything to it. This is a lot... It, it's funny because in a lot of ways it reminds me of Memento, partly because of the way it's structured, um, also with the black and white, and also the kind of cyclical going back and forth. I mean, like, Memento's backwards, but, I mean, there is definitely an A to B kind of thing going on there with some going back just a little bit before and a little bit before. And so I feel like you, if you were going to pair it with another Christopher Nolan movie, I would say Memento and then this, but... Um, this could be his best movie, um, Oppenheimer. When, uh, but I maybe mean, I may ha- it might be. I may have to like sleep on it for a bit. But this could be it, and yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, it's at least in the top three, I would say, of all of his movies. So whether yeah, it's number I, three or, or something else is is another thing. But yeah. I think that's that's probably uh, a reasonable estimation at this point. I mean, yeah, time will tell. Time will Get tell. A little, and... little more distance from it, and and we'll see. Yeah, it'll be a little bit more obvious down the line. And he's not doing the Tarantino thing, so he's going to keep making movies. So it's not like, you know... Yeah, as, as yeah. long as he's got movies he wants to make, he's going to keep making them. Yeah, but I think we're going to let him. So, because his, his movies make money. Yep. Yep. And, yeah, so this is uh, his first R-rated movie since Insomnia. So since he got with Warner Brothers. And yep. it does earn its R rating, I will I will. It add. does. It does. Yeah. It, you know, there, there are a few moments... Um, it could almost, almost have been PG-13, but I do feel like without those moments, this would have been a compromised film and would not have been the complete story. So I, I feel like not only does it earn that rating, it deliberately earns that rating for legitimate narrative and character purposes. It's it's not for the sake of being gratuitous R. It's... Mm-hmm. Well, and if you really want the like high school social studies version of this, go watch Fat Man and Little Boy. So, I mean, like, yeah. that's, yeah. All right, so things that don't exactly work for me. Um, actually, Tim, you go first, yeah. So there's there's very little that doesn't really work for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it 
it is a long movie. Mm-hmm. I do feel like it it earns its runtime for the most part. It doesn't really drag. I I don't know how I would have made it shorter, but I felt like maybe this could have been a little bit tighter. Mm-hmm. But the the intention is is let's we're we're kind of stewing in this in the same way that that Oppenheimer is mm-hmm. in in the aftermath and struggling with his his guilt over over what's happened right there is um so the a movie that came out this year which is like it's kind of hard for me to recommend because it is very steeped in a very slow moving very dread way this movie called skinnamarink which Mm. is a hundred minutes long does not probably does not need to be a hundred minutes long but the thing is if you cut out 20 minutes of that movie are you losing ways of making it more effective with that downtime that makes it that makes it creepier and so that's kind of where i'm at too with you like i feel like there's definitely a time where this could this could be tightened in some way there's like i felt for the most part fine until about mm, somewhere in the third act i felt like this is it wasn't dragging but it was kind of lulling a little bit yeah Yeah. and i I felt like that was intentional and I'm, yeah. but I was still a little, yeah. Eh, maybe. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's, that's where I'm at too. Like I, like I feel like it makes sense what they're doing, but at the same time there might be a better way to have this work. Um, and I don't know if that's in the script or if that's in the editing, I'm, I'm not sure where that happens, but yeah. yeah. Uh, so really only two other things I want to bring up is mm-hmm. that the uh, previously mentioned interleave perspective narrative yeah. timeframes, mm-hmm. uh, that was a little bit disconcerting toward the beginning of the film mm-hmm. once you kind of figured out okay here's here's what's going on it, it worked okay i i was not you know unsettled or you know discombobulated by it for very long <laughs> yeah. but i was i was a little bit at the beginning i think the discombobulation is also kind of on purpose but that doesn't mean they can't find a way to like make it work a yeah. little better yeah i i, I might have okay you know let's let's stick with one for a little bit before shifting to the other right yeah, maybe maybe that's that's an editing thing. Maybe um, maybe it could just be could be a script thing yeah. too. I'm not sure. Yeah, um, hard but, hard to say there. But that was okay. Yeah, my I do have like a little thing kind of related to that. Um, so with that structure going on with the the cyclical going back and forth between the two of them things mm-hmm. is that's interesting. It keeps the movie going. It has an interesting you know it propels things forward, which is a thing that's very helpful in a three hour epic yeah. scope movie. Yeah. Um, at the same time, though, I do wonder if, and this is kind of a Christopher Nolan issue, um, if that sort of hurts, um, if, and I'm curious if that editing kind of hurts the depth to a certain extent. This movie is not shallow in any way, I'm not going to say that at, at all. Um, we are mostly focusing on Oppenheimer here, and so, like, his, he's given a lot, he's very multidimensional, he's given a lot to to consider and a lot of philo- philosophical issues with that. But the thing is, this was still a project done with a lot of people. This yeah. was a thing where characters who are also real people in this case have to have motivations and have to have relationships and everything. And I do wonder if the editing hurts that area of depth. It sort of hinders character development in such a way that we don't have that much time with someone in a given place. So even if that depth is there historically, it might be hard for us to feel that as an audience because we're going to go to the next thing in three minutes. And we might be going back to that scene a little bit later and maybe it gets a little bit better. But I'm curious if that's something that hurts that. Um, I don't have like a fast and loose specific example, but it seems something that once we hit like the two hour mark, that's what I was starting to feel. I feel like we're not getting enough depth with relationships of people with each other which is 
kind of a problem considering we have this whole subplot with Florence Pugh's character. Mm. And yeah, so that's, yeah, that's, that was, that, that's my only qualm with that certain thing about the editing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a valid criticism. I wasn't yeah. bothered as much by it, but I mean, since you mentioned, yeah, I, that, that might've helped the movie a little more. And I think that's a similar issue with Dunkirk as much as I, as much as I like that movie. Like I think Dunkirk yeah. has a, has a similar issue with that because of it, that. it does. There was, yeah. there was very little real character development in that movie. Mm -hmm. And if there's one thing I will say, like, I, I really like Dunkirk. I think it's like a super well-made movie. There's, you can watch that movie as a silent movie and it totally works. Mm -hmm. um, but like the, I can't help but wonder if it's like, it's like three different plot lines, right? We got land, air, and sea. Yeah, um, and yeah, there so, are a few like, different things going. It's, it's, yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot going on. But for the most part, it's like Mark Rylance, uh, Harry Styles, well, not Harry Styles, um, the, the guy who hangs out with Harry Styles, um, Kenneth Branagh's world, mm -hmm. um, and, um, and Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy, yeah. Yeah, and so like you can't help but wonder what would happen if we just got all three of those separately in like a triptych and see what that would be like um, in this. However... I do have, so I recently watched a fan edit of the two It movies where they cut it like the book. So the two movies were sent, were like the two It movies were kids mm. and then adults. And the adult portion was never the best part of the book. But <laughs> like, I was curious how, what would happen if someone edited in the way it is in the book where they go back and forth. So like they'll have a scene with the kids and they'll have a scene with adults that kind of mirrors that scene. And so what I was hoping for when seeing this happen is that it would make the adult sections better. It didn't. It made the kids sections worse. Um, and a thing that kind of reminded me of a Hank Hill quote about Christian music. But the... <laughs> yeah. And so I think like if we were to take Dunkirk and this, if we were to have separate things it wouldn't work as well yeah uh more than one person i think has already speculated that maybe this would have worked better as as like a, a limited series on television given a longer time but broken up into smaller chunks to develop and I, things and i get that but i'm disagreeing yeah um, make a movie <laughs> um yeah, yeah that's and that's that's kind of where i'm at as well it's like yeah. yes and in, in terms of the content that might have allowed it to develop and 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 deepen more but then it wouldn't have been a movie and, mm -hmm. and this was mm -hmm. intended to be, you know, this this cinematic experience. Yep. And I am getting real tired of people saying that. But um, this should have been like an HBO limited series. No, not everything has to be like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe some should. But mm -hmm. no, this this is what it was meant to be. Agreed. And is way cooler as a movie. Um, yeah. No shade to TV, but yeah. <laughs> So, uh, anyway, the, so what else? One, you, you had one other thing that was. A, I have, that was I have a one more thing. Yeah. One more thing. So the the end of uh, Louis Strauss's arc, at mm -hmm. least in terms of this movie, mm -hmm. uh, there's there's a bit where his one of his aides has kind of a speech at the mm -hmm. end there that felt like it came kind of out of nowhere to me. Yes, the um, the the Han Solo guy. Uh, uh, Alden Ehrenreich, yes. There some, we go, that's his name. Yeah, some, some, somebody else we had not mentioned. All-star yeah. cast, folks. Um, mm -hmm. No, it was it was a good speech, but it felt like a, a complete heel turn for that character in, in how he was interacting with others. I think, I agree. I mean, like, you're, you're right, but when I think about the nature of politics and I think about the nature of being someone's aide, when you learn that the person who you're being the aide of is their career is basically just ended, you can take the facade off of, like... Because everyone's going to think their boss is a blowhard. And mm -hmm. he had the moment where he could tell his he could tell his boss to his face the thing that's pissing him off. And, yeah. 
And although I agree with you that he, it does come off as a bit of a heel turn, I do feel some realness in that. At there, the same there, time. there is there is some realness there, but mm-hmm. I I felt like it's like yeah, hadn't hadn't quite got to the point where that would have happened. Yeah, we could have had like one more scene with that character where we we see him hiding it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like it it made sense to me, but that doesn't mean it couldn't be better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. he he had leading up to that had some moments of of realization where you know he was you know somewhat disillusioned and okay, so it it wasn't completely unearned, but I felt like he hadn't quite got across that line where where this speech really made sense. Mm-hmm. No, I get that. I get that. All right. And so the last thing for me, and this is also a Nolan problem, and that is like Nolan is not great at his female characters or his his women characters. He's it's never really been that good of a, a strong suit for him. Like, uh, there's been a problem since following. It's uh, it's always been prevalent in all of his movies. It's just what it is. And here's the thing. So, like, and I where I find that being the biggest issue is is Florence Pugh's character. Mm. Um, I feel like her she's not given a whole lot to work with in in how it's done. And this she's a very important role. And like this is kind of a big deal. And I feel like her character is underwritten. Again, a real person, so it's like, yeah. you, know, you, you want this to be better. And I was feeling that way, to Nolan's credit here, I was feeling that way with Emily Blunt's um, Kitty Oppenheimer character for the most part of the movie. It wasn't until probably, like, it wasn't until the last act that it started to really gel. It's like, oh, okay, so now we're actually using Emily Blunt as Emily Blunt here and have her do a good thing. So, you know, credit where credit's due is there. But that's still an issue here. Um, and there are some choices that the man makes that I'm... A little like oh okay um you you went with that um <laughs> that i'm not 100 percent sure it was the best call but you know uh, i'll put it this way there's uh the first time we hear the i am become death quote is done in a scene that is a little strange um and maybe that's what happened in real life i don't know but <laughs> the yeah i couldn't help but be like well that's coloring something yeah. later in the movie to a it, certain extent yeah. and, it, and i imagine and that is on purpose and that that means something but at this for for the how we are used to that i am become death quote to be given this extra hidden more context kind of like gave me more of a side i gave it more of a side eye than it uh than than anything else so yeah no i i i hear you um I was willing to to give a little bit of room there for for mm-hmm. artistic license because yeah. from from everything we do know about these people they were kind of strange. Mm-hmm. So it's okay. Yeah, this is this is a little weird, but everything we've seen about these characters so far leads me to believe that they're a little weird. So mm-hmm. and and like well the weirdness of it isn't the thing. It's just it just seems like uh using that specific quote in that scene anyone who knows anything about this is going yeah. to have like it's yeah. going to color something. And, yeah. yeah, but yeah, I mean, like those are, those are my major qualms with it. Um, I still think it's probably, you know, it's definitely one of his best movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so what do we think is the big, so talking about the big message and the themes of this, I mean, like this is doing a lot of the message and themes that we've had on a lot of the other things and then a lot of the other movies we've talked about in this series. So, but my question I wanted to ask you, Tim, and you've already kind of touched on this a little bit, is do you feel like this is glorifying in any way? I feel like it is somewhat but mm-hmm. it's it's not raising him up on a pedestal mm-hmm. it's like he was a man he was a human being he had incredible strengths he had some really Profound notable flaws. weaknesses yeah. yeah and and he struggled you know with 
both with working towards this this monumental scientific achievement and the ramifications of it afterward mm-hmm. in in different ways. So um, I and I think it really does a good job of displaying his humanity rather than you know glorifying him and turning him into you know this this you know rah rah jingoist war hero. Right. I I think the closest comp I have in the whole glorification thing is um, Wolf of Wall Street. Mm. is like there's a lot of dude bros that think like, oh these guys are awesome they're like doing quaaludes and all the drugs and all the ladies and all that stuff but then like you know marty is not trying to make that movie be like these guys are great he's been, no these guys suck because mm-hmm. of this mm-hmm. and and i think nolan is do- this vastly different kind of story but i think both though both about three hours long um, <laughs> but uh <laughs> Not think of it, um, but I think Nolan is kind of looking at that too. I think that American Prometheus concept is the big thing here. Is that like, because if you know the story of Prometheus, Prometheus mm-hmm. gives fire to the humans and then has to have you know gets punished for it. It gets gets tied up and an eagle comes and eats his liver like every, every day. single day. Every day. And if you think about this, like what do we what bird do we associate with America? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You are the man who gave them the power to destroy themselves. I don't think that was in Fat Man and Little Boy. Now keep in mind, Fat Man and Little Boy is more Leslie Groves' movie. So that's part of that. And But that, I think, we're seeing a man who's haunted by what he did and what he is responsible for. He has a scene with Truman, played by Gary Oldman, of, of all people. Um, yeah. Because <laughs> um, we had to have another Nolan person um, where he says, like, <laughs> I feel like I have blood on my hands. And, you know, Truman is like, whatever, but whatever <laughs> and yeah yeah and like i think that is that kind of shows how this isn't that it's not really glorifying what he did it's putting it in a context and this is like a kind of messed up thing when it comes to how america became america we you know like it was the it was the space race but the space race was all about like trying to get one up on russia mm-hmm. it was you know that was like a big thing a lot of our technological and medical advances were because we were just trying to show up another nation and that's that's what this movie is showing and that's, i think that, that's that's part of it yeah. yeah um i mean the latter part specifically but like well, yeah, there's yeah. there's a there's a very pointed line where, where Oppenheimer says, I don't know if we can be trusted with such a, a weapon, but I know yep. the Nazis can't. Yep. Yep. And yeah, that that still holds true. It's like this this was not just to, you know, you know, show somebody else up. There was there was a war on, so there was a, a very immediate and critical impetus here. So it's mm-hmm. but, but there's there, more to this, that too. Yeah, there 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 is. Yeah. There is. Yeah, and we will be talking, we'll kind of be touching on that in our next movie. So, yeah. I mean, but this was all about, you know, Truman also, I mean, like, this is about showing up to Russia, but it's also, you know, Truman wanting unconditional surrender. So, like, there's a yeah. lot of things to this. Yeah. And so, yeah. So, this this is awesome and incredible and terrible and horrific and, and so many things. It's... Yeah, there's, a lot of people are saying they were leaving the movie like the movie is not a horror film, but you leave the movie feeling like you watched a horror movie. In in some ways, yeah. There there mm-hmm. are there are horrific things, and this this is history. There mm-hmm. there was real real life horror, real consequences from this. And this feels like watching this movie gives a real synthesis to our double feature. Um, when you consider when you look at them, when you look at matinee, and you look at the paranoia that came from that, like this does a really good job of synthesizing those feelings in an origin story. 
<laughs> and so, like, I feel like Nolan is doing... A, it, it's Like, I wonder how many Atomic Age movies he watched. I mean, like, I'm, he's a film guy. He probably watched a bunch of these things. But I wonder how much of that fed in to how he made this movie. Like, he wanted to kind of, like, show the origin of that Cold War Atomic Age paranoia that we had in our, you know, 50s and 60s media. And so, like, I... I don't know. It's like, I like that this is a messy movie and it's looking at it from yeah. a really philosophical and deep place. If the characters might not be as deep as I want them, again, with the exception of a few, I don't think it's a shallow movie, but like, I do it's, think it's the movie not. Is, I do think the movie is making the intellectual and philosophical leaps. That is probably, in a lot of ways, this is Nolan's deepest movie in that sense. It is. If you look at it from the perspective of being about a single character Oppenheimer exactly, himself yeah. is the central figure yeah. here yeah. so we don't get as much depth to any of the other players in the narrative mm. with and the exception that's... of Strauss I think um and I, that yeah, is there's, more there's, as there's foil. more to him yeah, yeah than than others and but I think, not as much as Oppenheimer because I think there's a there's additional theme to this that is the difference between great and lesser men and that that's really played out in like literally the final 10 minutes of the movie I think yeah and and because, you know, we get Einstein and, and Oppenheimer with this juxtaposition with Strauss, because Strauss had hired both of them um, to work at the university he was at. And it shows him as being like a lesser small man who's very concerned about himself and the other two concerned about the world at large and what's happening because of stuff that they did. And like, I think there's an interesting theme there between, uh, you know, comparing what makes a great man a great man, because great men can do terrible things. Indeed. Um, but but what can make a lesser man who wants to be a great man always falter? And that and, and like I always said, like when we talked about the thing, like when a movie is mostly men, it's probably saying something about masculinity. And I think that's where that's being said is in the juxtaposition of Strauss and and Oppenheimer in the kind of men that they are. Yeah. So and somewhat related to our, our last two points, I, I think it's important to say that at least I did not feel that this is a redemption story for Oppenheimer either. It's, I didn't feel it's, that way. It's either. not raising him up on a pedestal, but it's it's not redeeming him. It's not forgiving him. It's it's more about understanding him. Yeah, and there's a lot of people that kind of treat J. Bob as like the smartest man ever, and. I don't think this movie shows that. He just shows that he was maybe one of the best managers um, ever. He was the kind of guy, he was smart in the sense that he knew what his limits were and knew who to bring in when he needed to get to the next thing. Yeah. And that, I th if there's anything that glorifies, that it glorifies anything in a positive way about him, I think I would say it's that. A guy who was really good at managing people to get a job done. And Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the movie does show his strengths, but it also yep. shows his weaknesses and it's... Mm -hmm. and, and, and I agree, yeah, it's not there's, redeeming there's, there's him. There's a lot going on. It's yeah. not redeeming him in showing that positive stuff. Yeah. Whew. Yeah, that was a lot. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's a, it has definitely been deserving of all the accolade that it has been getting. Anything else, Tim, before we get into the grades? No, no, I think, I think we've, we've covered most of my thoughts on, uh, yeah. on the film. I'm, I'm sure I'll have more later, you know, again, yeah. given distance, but... Yeah, I think, and I'm also kind of glad we gave ourselves a good chunk of time to think about this before we before we recorded this. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, um, there is. A, I did have one extra thing. Um, okay. This has nothing to do with anything. I should have talked about this earlier, but I'm going to talk about it now. Um, and that is Josh Hartnett again. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Here's the thing I found out. So this is an interesting tidbit. Just a piece of, just a little piece of trivia. So Killian and Josh Hartnett apparently were both up to be for Batman in Batman Begins. 
didn't get the and so like it's funny that the you know even though Michael Caine's not in this movie I mean Gary Oldman is in this but yes forever Batman is still got its touches it's got its yep, cowl yep. All, all all over this movie in a different way than expected so yeah um, grade wise though uh, I would say that I am giving this an A minus there is because the, the the problems that I have with it do kind of keep it from going to straight A category for me however. I kind of get the feeling that this is going to be a movie that's going to make it pretty far. I like I suspect it may be this movie versus another movie at the Oscars this year. I you know so I kind of like it's early to tell buzz for stuff but I am wondering if like this could be, you know, Murphy's year. Well, we'll see. It, um, it very well could be. Um yeah, I I agree this is this is kind of an A minus. I do think that that might creep upward over time i feel mm -hmm. like this is a movie that is going to age pretty well mm -hmm. i and i agree with that as well all right so that is oppenheimer and we are going to be continuing on with our summer series the atomic summer with our next episode and we will be talking about um we're going to be looking at this from japan's perspective and so we are going to be watching the grave of fireflies so okay i'm gonna i'm not gonna lie this is one of those movies when you look up most heartbreaking movies of all time this is often mm -hmm. in the top three so be prepared yeah but uh yeah so that is our next film in our series and for now that's our show thanks for listening everybody and we'll see you next time bye bye we had a moment where it looked like the chain reaction from an atomic device might never stop are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button we destroy the world. Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want from theory alone? Zero.